KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego, offering the online Master of Data Science program, shaping the next generation of data-driven problem solvers. Learn more about the online Master of Data Science program from UC San Diego at omds.ucsd.edu. Welcome back to the KPBS Cinema Junkie podcast. I'm Beth Accomando. Okay, my apologies for the flurry of podcasts that came on each other's heels, but I had such wonderful opportunities this past week to speak with a trio of truly gifted and innovative filmmakers. So following my podcasts with S. Craig Zaylor on Bone Tomahawk and Robert Eggers on The Witch, here's one with documentary filmmaker Joshua Oppenheimer about The Look of Silence. The Look of Silence is up for a Best Documentary Oscar, and there'll be a pair of screenings here in San Diego. Tonight, Monday, February 22nd, at UCSD, and tomorrow night, February 23rd, at San Diego State University. For more information, go to kpbs.org slash junkiepodcast. And if you miss the screening of the film, it's available on iTunes, Amazon, YouTube, and more. And it's a film you need to see, not just because it tackles an important issue regarding the Indonesian genocide, but also because it artfully and stunningly challenges our expectations about what a documentary is and can be. The Look of Silence was designed as a companion piece to Oppenheimer's first documentary, The Act of Killing. Both look to the Indonesian genocide. A largely unnoticed victory over the communists has been decisively won in Southeast Asia. In fact, it is the single biggest defeat ever handed to communists anywhere in the world. Sixteen months ago, these beautiful and tranquil-looking islands exploded with stunning violence. In many cases, entire families were liquidated, and the purge continues to this day. Ted Yates, NBC News, reporting. But the first film looks to the people involved in the killings and asks them to reenact those killings as movies. The Look of Silence looks to a man who lived through the genocide and is trying to find some sort of closure regarding the death of a family member. I began the interview by asking Oppenheimer how he got into documentary filmmaking. Well, actually, I went to university to study uh, theoretical physics and cosmology because I was interested in the nature of existence and then how come we, as part of that which exists, can perceive. And I realized those questions were really philosophical questions, but then I realized that these are questions that aren't really maybe best answered in words but through experience. And so for me, nonfiction film became this way of turning my whole life and work into a kind of a perpetual process of exploration of the deepest mysteries of what it means to be human. And so that, that's how I became a, a nonfiction filmmaker. I studied, I switched from physics to film in the middle of university, but that's been my, that's been my path. The act of killing and the look of silence work very well as companion pieces. And I understand that there was, you had done one interview that inspired you to make both of these films. Can you talk about that? Sure, it's a film. It's a it's an it's a scene that uh, comes in sections uh, throughout the the look of silence, and it's a scene where two death squad leaders take me down to the Snake River, where they help the army kill upwards of ten thousand five hundred people at one spot, and they take turns playing victim and perpetrator, uh, showing how they killed, uh, boasting about it, almost trying to outdo one another in the enthusiasm by which they describe these heinous acts. 
ya. Tolong, tolong, ah. ampun pak. Ah. Itu, kalau misalnya terusin sambil dia itu ada yang bisa berteriak langsung. Ampun pak, tolong, tolong, ampun pak. I filmed it was January 2004, and I had been filming perpetrators of the Indonesian genocide for six months. And I was doing this at the request of survivors and the family that's at the center of the look of silence, who were threatened by the army uh, not to participate in my film. They then said, okay, if you can't film with us, try to film the perpetrators. And I first filmed, I was afraid to film the perpetrators at first. When I overcame that fear, I certainly approached them alone, because I thought that if I approached two, they might conspire to report me to the police. With, it would be harder to read uh, whether it was dangerous or not. But after six months of filming perpetrators boasting alone to my camera, I felt I have to know, are they only boasting for me? Is it something about my demeanor or the fact that I'm American and they knew that America uh, had participated in the genocide? Or is it uh, a consequence of uh, yes, the presence of the camera? Well, what is it that's eliciting this boasting? I had to see that as to say, if I brought two perpetrators together, would they still boast in front of each other? And after six months, I took the risk of bringing perpetrators together and found that they were even worse when they were together, that they were reading from a shared script, and that if there was an insanity here, it was collective insanity. If there was evil, it was political and collective evil. And in the middle of this scene where they take me down to the river, they, uh, the two men pause to smell some flowers on the side of this dirt track uh, that leads to the clearing in the river where they killed people. And then they help each other down this slippery, grassy embankment in a gentle way. And in that moment of pause, I felt as though I'd wandered into the eye of a storm and had a moment to think and to catch my breath. And the thought that came to me was, it's as though I've wandered into Germany 40 years after the Holocaust, only to find the Nazis still in power. If the rest of the world had celebrated the Holocaust while it took place. And I went home that evening very upset by what I'd filmed that day and noted in my diary, what if this idea of the Nazis winning isn't the exception, but the rule across and kind of the pattern across much of the global South? What if this impunity is the story of our times? And I decided I would make two films that day, one about the lies, the stories, the fantasies the perpetrators tell to justify their actions so they can live with themselves and the terrible consequences of that for the whole society and a second film, in a way the more important one, what does it do to human beings to have to live in such a society? What does half a century of fear and silence do to our humanity? And, and that's, the, uh, that's the look of silence. So you knew pretty quickly that you would take these two radically different approaches in these two documentaries. And talk a little more about what you hoped each style would help you to accomplish. Sure. Well... In, in in the act of killing, the idea of uh, inviting the perpetrators to dramatize what they'd done and, and what they, how they feel about it in whatever way they wish was a way of trying to understand was a way of trying to understand how they want to be seen and how they see themselves. It was a way of trying to understand. Uh, I, I felt that the perpetrators were boasting, and boasting is always. Uh, performative. It's not like it's not the sober testimony that you would expect for a film about such a subject. And performance is always intended for an audience. And the question for me was, who is there? The, who is the perpetrator's imagined audience? How do they want to be seen by me, by the world? And how do they want to see themselves? And how do they really see themselves? 
and allowing them to dramatize what they'd done in whatever ways they wish was a way of making visible the lies, the stories, the fantasies uh, through which they make, through that they tell themselves they can live with their actions, through which they make sense of what they've done. And by confronting them with those dramatizations, they're forced to see their lies as lies. And that was, uh, that, that led to this kind of flamboyant fever, fever dream of a film, particularly if you see the uncut version of the film, what's out on Netflix in the United States is the director's cut of The Act of Killing. It's, it's not really a director's cut because it's, made, uh, it's not made afterwards and out of regret, like most director's cuts. It's the original uncut film, and it's the version that came out everywhere in the world apart from the U.S. But when you see it, you feel like you're not watching a documentary, but this kind of fever dream, and it's cut through by these moments of absolute silence, these shifts in perspective from the perpetrators to the absent dead. And in the look of silence, I knew I wanted to take the viewer into any one of those haunted silences that punctuate the director's cut of the act of killing and make you feel what is it like to have to live there as a survivor, surrounded by the powerful men who murdered your loved ones. And... So I took a different approach. I tried to find a way of making visible these normally invisible uh, things of fear and silence and the ghosts of the unburied dead. That involved coming up with a cinematic language that was precise and trained on that which is almost invisible, the, 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 the traces of this fear, what it's done to this family that's lived with tremendous dignity and love and grace in this kind of impossible circumstance. And then also how to make visible the danger, what it's like to live surrounded by the man who killed your son. And when Adi proposed to me, the main character in The Look of Silence, after editing the act of killing, but before it had its first screening, at which point I knew I couldn't return to Indonesia safely at all, when he proposed to me that he wanted to confront the man who killed his brother, having spent years watching my footage with the perpetrators, I immediately said no. I said it's too dangerous. He convinced me that as to, as to the importance of trying, and we found a way of doing it safely. And I realized that these confrontations would never achieve the reconciliation for which Adi was hoping. Rather, Adi's gentle, humanizing gaze would uh, make it harder for the perpetrators. They would be, they, he, Adi's face would become a kind of mirror in which they see their own conscience. They would return his gaze and see him as a human being. And then, therefore, and by extension, Romley, Adi's murdered brother, is a human being. And then all of their victims as human beings. And they would panic because all the lies they've told themselves justifying their actions are based on dehumanizing their victims. Suddenly, through Adi, they'd see their victims as human, and they would panic, grow defensive, uh, scramble for new lies justifying what they've done. And I warned Adi, I don't think we'll get that reconciliation, but I also said, if we can show why we failed with uh, empathy and precision. We'll be, make, we'll be making visible the prison of fear in which everybody's living. We'll be gazing into this abyss of guilt that's dividing everybody, fear and guilt that's dividing everybody. And we'll make anyone who sees the film long for the social change, the political change that would have made it possible for Adi to succeed. That is what made it anyone who sees the film long for truth, justice, and reconciliation, and so perhaps succeed in a bigger way through the film where we fail in the individual confrontations. So you mentioned that you can't go back to shoot anything else after the films came out. Has that proven to be true? And have you have any desire to test that? 
I have no desire to test that because uh, everybody who monitors the security and human rights situation in Indonesia insists I mustn't go back. And I receive pretty regular death threats uh, from the henchmen of the most powerful perpetrators in the act of killing. Luckily, the look of silence, which is distributed by two government bodies in Indonesia, the National Human Rights Commission and the Jakarta Arts Council, something extraordinary since the act of killing uh, opened the space for, in which the look of silence has come out, but had to do so by having its screenings, at least initially, in secret. Uh, the act of killing has been out for, uh, the look of silence has been out for over a year in Indonesia, and Adi has not been threatened. On the contrary, Adi's been seen by the uh, media and the public as a kind of national hero, because he doesn't confront anyone quite as powerful as the, as the men offended by the act of killing. The, but because of those threats that I still receive, I, I, I don't dare test it. I think I'd get into Indonesia pretty easily. I just don't think I'd get out again. Your films really challenge the conventional notions of what a documentary is. So for you, what do you feel defines what a documentary is? What do you feel it needs to do to qualify as that? I think I simply define a nonfiction film as a film in which people play themselves. And what I try to do in a nonfiction film to make that meaningful, to, 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 to mine that idea of people playing themselves for all that it's, all that it's capable of delivering, is to, to find characters who lie at the, at the kind of epicenter of some, something that deeply fascinates me, and then to take a journey with them. And it's a journey of discovery where together we search for situations that we can create, new realities that we create, whether it's the dramatizations in the act of killing or the confrontations in the look of silence, new realities that we can create together that make visible the secret hidden source of the problems that fascinate me, source things that need to, that normally for their, that normally remain unspoken, either because they're too frightening or because if they're made explicit, they no longer, uh, they no longer function in the same way. And I, so I, I look for situ, situations, realities that I can create with my characters that make visible the causes of the deepest, uh, uh, the, the deepest causes of the problems that I'm trying to address through the film. And I, I, of course, because I don't, of course, because I'm getting to know my characters through this journey and because we're pushing the limits of what's possible always, we're discovering as we go what situations are going to be most effective. But uh, having to, once we get on the track, once we get on the right path, we, we find that we're creating realities that push everybody beyond their comfort zone, not just the participants, but necessarily, if it's going to be an honest film, the crew as well within the overall safe space of making a film. And I would say that the finished film is not a report of what happened during the shooting, but actually a kind of condensation, a kind of emotional journey, a series of occasions and moods and tones and instances, a condensation of all the mystery and pain and magic and horror and beauty that we encounter on this journey, condensed into, a, into an hour and a half or two hours, two and a half hour experience for an audience. When people talk about documentaries, a lot of times this notion of objectivity is brought up. How important is that notion to you? Because in some ways, I feel that there's really no such thing as objectivity in documentary. Like every documentary has some level of subjectivity. But how do you view that? I think what's normally described as objectivity in documentary is really 
a kind of distancing that serves above all to reassure the viewer, to keep the viewer at a comfortable remove and usually in a position of moral superiority to the thing that's being explored. And that's not objective. It's playing into the subjective wishes of the viewer to be gratified, to be confirmed as someone good for having taken the time to watch the film and someone above the evils exposed by the film and or implicated in a simple way that we can... Uh, yeah, maybe I wouldn't even say that. Above the, above the, the, the evils exposed by the film. And I think... What I try to do is not to have this objective distance, but actually to immerse the uh, viewer in the situation, to make them feel the space and understand the space in which the film takes place. So in the uh, Look of Silence, it's, the, it's a space of ghosts, and of the, the ghosts of the unburied dead, and, the, and fear and silence, and the dignity of survival. And to make the view immersive, my goal is to immerse the viewer in that space, to give them no distance, but to give them a moral perspective on that space in which they're immersed. Well, you achieve that amazingly thank well. You. <laughs> well. Thank you. Both of those documentaries were so powerful. I'm wondering for you, because documentary is, is a, a, a type of film where so much of it is constructed in the editing room. And The Look of Silence in particular has this very personal journey to it. How difficult was it to edit in the sense of having to repeatedly watch some of this footage, which is, some of it is really chilling? Well, one of the painful things in editing a film with such pain, uh, consisting, that includes such painful material and also such beautiful and delicate material is that you become numb to it and you feel almost guilty when you watch perpetrators boasting about a heinous crime for the fifth, sixth, tenth time that you've become inured to it somehow. And yet the moment you screen that material, screen a cut with that material in it to an audience, you feel their horror in your stomach and you reconnect with how the, how the material actually plays and what it actually means. And, and that's a very powerful, um, that's invariably a, a very powerful moment where you realize what you're dealing with. I'd also, when, uh, you know, the, the, the Look of Silence was a very unique film to edit. The Act of Killing was cut from 1,200 hours of material. It took three years to cut. There were two younger editors working for a year and a half full-time under my supervision to uh, reduce the material to 23 hours of scenes. We then moved with that material to Denmark where Niels Pay Anderson uh, compressed that into the two-hour and 40-minute finished uh, film, what's called The Director's Cut. And then The Look of Silence, by, contra- by contrast, it was, Niels and I edited that film after, first of all, there was less material, but we edited it having done this immensely complex work of making the act of killing, and so it felt like we were dancing together. We put down the first shot, the shot of the eyes. We put down the second shot, the shot of the jumping beans. We put down the third shot, Adi watching, and so we built the opening of the film. Then we built the first scene, then the first sequence, then the first half of the film. And then we thought, let's make an ending, and we worked our way backwards until the two pieces met. And I don't think we changed the opening by a single frame. That's very unusual in uh, documentary film where you're often work restructuring the film again and again to find the shape. We maybe swapped around two of the confrontations and a couple of the scenes with the families once, 
and and that was that was it. It was a very it was a mercifully easy process that that reflected how I feel about the film, which is that although the film was physically frightening to make and is therefore dramatic for the audience, it was an emotionally healing film to make. And so if you're a viewer who's seen the act of killing and hesitant to uh, subject yourself to something quite so harrowing, I'm not saying it's a walk in the park, but it is a, it, it is a gentle film and I think a deep film and a healing film. You're going to be screening this here at San Diego State University, where it's likely that there'll be not just students, but also students who may be film students. I feel like your film has so much to offer them, both in terms of just the content of the story you're telling, as well as the approach that you have to filmmaking. Are you looking forward to this screening and interacting with the students? I love I love screening the work for young filmmakers because it's just so interesting to see how you know these are filmmakers who are discovering new directions and I am aware that my films are, are a little bit out of step with most of what's happening in documentary and it's just wonderful to see the reactions of students when they perceive that as a kind of breath of fresh air I'm not saying that what what's out there is stale in any way but I'm just saying that it's wonderful to see the reactions of filmmakers when they see a new approach. And it's also wonderful to see people moved by the possibility of pursuing something so deeply. Many of the students will probably know of the, have, have seen the act of killing, and so when they see the look of silence, there's a sense of, of, of encountering a whole project, a deep project, and what it means to spend, in my case, my whole youth making a making a single work. And I do think of the two films as, as a single work. After something so immersive as this project, these two films, do you have something already planned or do you need a little bit of a breather? I A little of both. I have something planned. But after, you know, I live in Europe, so to, to be here promoting a film ahead of the Academy Awards involves little time to return home. So I will need a little breather when I get back. But yes, I do have planned... Uh, a couple projects in the works. I'm excited about them, and I'm so sorry I cannot talk about them. That's all right. I kind of expected that. (laughs) All right. Well, I know you're on a tight schedule today, so thank you very much for your time, and I look forward to meeting you when you come out here to San Diego. It's an exorbitant pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another edition of the KPBS Cinema Junkie podcast. Coming up on Friday, I'll have a podcast about Hammer Horror and a new film series I'll be co-hosting with the film geeks at the Digital Gym Cinema called Get Hammered. So till our next film fix, I'm Beth Accomando, your resident cinema junkie.
KPBS On Demand is supported by Under the Sun Foundation, presenting the Candlewood Arts Festival in Borrego Springs, featuring temporary public art projects that engage community and place. March 23rd. More at candlewoodartsfestival.org.